Are you willing to examine the traditions and doctrines that you trust in for your eternal salvation? Welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I am Don Britton and I will be your host. I will be comparing the modern traditions and doctrines of American Christianity with what the scriptures actually say. You may be shocked to find out that much of what is commonly believed in American Christianity today is nothing more than myths handed down to us by men. So please join me now with an open mind. Hello and welcome back to another Great Deception podcast. I'm Don Britton and I'm going to talk with you today about how you can know if the Holy Spirit is really in you or if it's really in somebody else. I'm going to use the scriptures to show you what the evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit is in anyone. This evidence is called fruit and it's also power. Fruit is what grows on a certain kind of tree or vine. You know, that's how you identify what kind of tree it is. It's, you know it by its fruit. The fruit is either going to be good or it's going to be bad. Therefore, the tree is either going to be good or bad. And we're considered to be the trees in the scriptures a lot of times. Good fruit only comes forth when the power of the Holy Spirit is present. So, let's look at some scripture. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. And Jesus is talking here and he said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now let me explain something to you. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Okay, you might say, well, everybody stumbles or even sometimes sins or anybody can sin. And to some degree, that's true. That is true. Anybody can sin and anybody who's a true believer does from time to time stumble and sometimes just outright sins. It happens. I mean, it does happen among the people of God from time to time. Does that mean that they're a bad tree? No, not if they make it right. In other words, let's say that someone stumbled and, and, and did something they shouldn't have done. They, they, had a, they had a moment of anger or a moment of lust or, or they did some prideful thing or they, or they even went out and willfully did something they knew that wasn't right. And then they, they realized this is just not going to work. This is terrible. And they come to themselves. They come to their senses. They are broken and in repentance over it. They make it right. They go to the people that affected it, that it affected, I should say. And they make everything right. And they clear it all up with God and with their fellow man. Well, isn't that good fruit? So even if they stumbled and then made it right, the end result is good fruit. So a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. In other words, if, if it's really, if you're really a good tree and you do something that's wrong, if you sin, you're going to make it right and you're going to turn from it and you're not going to keep doing it. So it ends up being, after all, good fruit. So I just want to make sure you understand that because some people try to make out like, well, nobody can be a good tree then because anybody can sin. Well, I just want to clear that up. You see, one of the big problems we have today is that most Christians, most of Christianity, doesn't know good fruit from bad fruit. If they could tell the difference between good fruit and bad fruit, 
we would not have so many false prophets deceiving the majority of Christianity as we do today, nor would the church be so saturated with false members living in willful sin as we do today. Because people just don't know. They just don't seem to know the difference between a person that's a good, a good, of a good tree bearing good fruit or somebody that's not. Because fruit's not just words. Fruit's not just going to church and so forth. I'll get into more of that later. Let's go back to scriptures. Matthew chapter 7. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he, that's referring to John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he, referring to Jesus, who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with, with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn. He'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here we are now, the difference between the good and bad trees, the difference between the good and bad fruit, the difference between the wheat and the chaff, and what's going to happen to it. You see, he was talking to the Pharisees. And today we have far more Pharisees around American Christianity today than John the Baptist did in his day. Yet few people even recognize them as such. We have countless pastors today preaching for pay, preaching to tickle ears, preaching for the approval of man, preaching for their career, preaching for their own image. We have so-called prophets taking in millions of dollars, flying around in their jet airplanes, living in their mansions, prophesying peace and safety and blessings and prosperity and, and telling you're going to be healed. And yet they do all of this without addressing the sins and the pitiful condition that the church is in today. John the Baptist calls them a brood of vipers and Jesus calls them ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. And, and somehow American Christianity has not got eyes to see what's going on. They seem to not have any discernment. So they don't know the difference between good fruit and bad fruit. John the Baptist warned us, he warned us to flee from the wrath to come and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This means to, that we need to bear fruit with, with, the, with the repentance of our sin. In other words, we turn from our sin maybe at some point in the past. That means we need to keep on bearing that fruit. In other words, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, don't go back to your old sins. Don't go back to, to the world. Don't go back to the flesh. This means to turn around from the practice of sin and to bear good fruit, putting on the nature of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist also said that the axe is already laid at the root of the trees and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And John was not only baptizing with water for repentance, but he was pointing to Jesus. In other words, he was referring to the fact that Jesus was coming after him 
and that Jesus would baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He explained that Jesus would separate the wheat, that is those with good fruit, from the chaff, that is those with bad fruit, and he would burn up the chaff in the un, the unquenchable fire. That's called hell. I mean, you get right down to it, that's hell. In other words, there's going to be those that go to hell and those that don't go to hell that go to heaven because some are bearing good fruit and some are not. And I want to ask you this question. Nobody ever much talks about the baptism of fire, but Jesus also had the baptism of fire along with the Spirit. In fact, they kind of go together when you really think about it. Have you, have you ever sensed that you had the baptism of fire? You know, the kind of baptism of fire that purifies you, that kind of burns out of you, that, that old way, that old nature, that old practice of sin, so that you end up bearing good fruit, the fruit of God? Have you, have you experienced that? Do you have the fear of God? Do you fear God enough that you won't go back to your old sins? Or do you have some kind of peace and safety on you that you'll be okay? And they call it grace now. The church today just accepts sins, accept the practice of sin, and they call it grace. So do you have the fruit of the Spirit of God? And I'm not, talk I'm not talking about the fruit of being a Baptist or a Methodist or a Pentecostal or charismatic. I'm not talking about that fruit. I'm talking about the fruit of the Spirit of God. Do you have that fruit? Malachi 3.2 says this, referring to the coming of the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he, the Lord, is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. There, <laughs> do you see that? The coming of the Lord, in other words, the Lord's going to come into your life if you're going to come into the presence of the Lord, if you're going to come into the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God is going to come into you, it's going to be like a fire and a cleansing of fuller soap. It's going to start cleaning you up. You're going to get under conviction because one of the things the Holy Spirit does is convict of sin. And one of the things he also does is lead us and guide us into all righteousness, into all truth. And he also sends his grace, which commands us to turn away from all worldliness and, God, and ungodly desires and to live righteously and, and godly in this present age. So the grace of God comes through the Spirit. In Hebrews 12, 28, here's another thing to consider. He's saying, again, he's talking about the kingdom of God. He says, therefore, since we have received, uh, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and with awe. For our God is a consuming fire. There you go again. The presence of God, if we're in the presence of God and we're really in the presence of his spirit, and his spirit is in us, we are going to experience this fire, this baptism of fire, which is going to cleanse us from all unholiness and bring us under conviction of sin and open up our eyes to see the truth and be able to discern. In 1 Peter 1, 6, Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. See, there's those fires, those, 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 uh, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes among you for the testing of your faith that Peter said in one place. And James talked about us being tested and under, you know, and the distresses and so forth that come. So he goes on to say in verse seven, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our faith is like gold being tested by fire. We're going to be tested by fire. 
This is the baptism of fire. And this is what's going to really bring forth the fruit. So the baptism of fire cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It turns our heart away from sin. It delivers us. It's the, it's the cross we bear where we take up our cross and deny ourselves. It gives us power to suffer and to overcome. And Jesus, again, talking in Revelation chapter 3, talking to the church, he's talking to us. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. Now, that's the condition of the American church today. It's the most lukewarm, passive, asleep, dead institution that has ever existed on the earth. That's the American church. That's American Christianity. And I don't care which denomination. You can say, oh, we're a spirit-filled denomination. Well, I'm going to tell you something. There is not one ounce more of holiness or power or anything else among the spirit-filled group than there is anybody else. That's just an illusion. But anyway, Jesus goes on to say, I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He's, Jesus says, I'm going to vomit you out, church. I'm going to get rid of you. I'm going to flush you away. I have nothing to do with this because you're lukewarm. And he goes on to say, even because you say, I am rich and have need of, I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. In other words, you say, I've got everything. I've got the Lord. I've got kingdom. I've got heaven. I've got it all sewed up. I've got the spirit of God. I can speak in tongues. I can do miracles. I can do this. I can do that. He says, because you say you're rich and you say you become wealthy, you say you have need of nothing. You do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked church. So here's what he says. Here's what the church needs. I advise you, church, to buy from me gold refined by fire. By fire. You need to be refined by fire so that you may become rich. And then white garments so that you may clothe yourself. In other words, white, pure, clean garments. You know, you're not contaminated with the world, and the ways of the world and with sin. Clothe yourselves with white garments that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see, church, you don't see. You don't see the wolves in sheep's clothing. You call them great prophets of God. You don't see the false pastors that are, that are preaching for money. You call them, you call them the great men of God. You don't see what's really going. You don't see the condition of the church, America. You think it's all good. You think everything is great but you're poor and blind and naked and you need some eye salve for your eyes so you can see. So we see that Jesus is warning the church here to move away from being lukewarm, away from being passive, away from being uh, naive to think that everything is okay. That is the place, by the way, of the dead. That naiveness, that lukewarmness, that's the place of the dead. He says, to go into, he, he says, go and get into the fire. Get into the fire like the fire that refines pure gold. That you, so you can start bearing good fruit, church. So you, Christian, can really bear the fruit of Christ. And Jesus is saying the same thing again in John chapter 15, verse 1. He said, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. He's talking to his disciples. So now he says, abide in me, which means continue. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't back down. Don't go back. Abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself 
unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Far apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, apart from me, apart from my Holy Spirit, apart from my indwelling, you can do nothing. He goes on to say, verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. That fire is called hell again. We're talking about the unquenchable fire here. Again, Jesus is looking for fruit. He's looking for good fruit. He's looking for godly fruit. He's looking for Christ-like fruit. He's looking for holy fruit. Otherwise, if he don't find it, he's going to cast that branch into the fire. Whether that branch may be me or be you, if we don't bear the kind of fruit he's looking for, it's going to the fire. And another parable, Luke 13, verse 6, Jesus is talking again. And Jesus began telling this parable. He said, A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and didn't find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Sir, he said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Now let me explain this parable to you the way I understand it. God had a fig tree. That could be any one of us, me or you. He, God, planted it in his vineyard, that is, his church or his kingdom. Any way you want to look at it there. When any one of us was saved, that's when he did that. He asked the vineyard keeper, who is Jesus, why is there no fruit on this fig tree after three years? Three years is a type of something. It's like a, a complete number. It means there's been enough time now for him to bear fruit. He's He should have gone through the baby stage by now, and he should have grown. He should have learned some things. He should have overcome some things. He He should be bearing good fruit by now. Why is there no fruit on this tree? Can you imagine the Lord God looking down upon the American church today and seeing the millions of people that claim to be of Christ and he's saying, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit, church? So what he said to do in that case was he said to cut it down. Like John the Baptist said, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Cut it down. But Jesus who intercedes with the Father on our behalf. I want you to see this. He said to the Father, let it alone for another year until I dig around it and put in some fertilizer. In other words, I'm going to send someone to rebuke him or to correct him. I'm going to send my word to him again. I'm going to try to reach, reach him through speaking grace to him, which is my word, my instruction again, so that he may start growing. He may start budding out some fruit. And Jesus went on to say, but if he bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down, cut the tree down, throw it in the fire. Now that's the condition of our American church today. A whole lot of trees with no fruit. Now let me explain something to you. Fruit is not church attendance. <laughs> I've had pastors say, oh, we got a really faithful brother here. He attends all five services of our meetings each week. And he serves in this program and serves in that 
That's not fruit. Fruit's not church attendance. Fruit is not praying the sinner's prayer. Fruit is not singing in the choir. Fruit is not participating in the worship service. Fruit is not paying the tithe. Fruit is not praying over your food at mealtime. I was having lunch with a guy one day, and my son and I were there and uh, uh, together, and this, this other gentleman who claimed to be a Christian, and, and lunch was brought to us, and my son began to eat on his lunch, and my, my friend just jumped all over and said, well, you haven't blessed that food. I said, I said, I said to him, I said, Jim, we, we, we understand that it's a heart thing. We don't have to go through a ritual every time we eat. He says, oh, but you don't understand. If you don't bless that food, this again goes back to the superstitions that are out there. If you don't bless that food, somebody could have spit on that food or it could have a bacteria in it or something to make you sick. He said, if, if you bless it, then the, the food is sanctified and cleansed from all bacteria and any kind of impurities or any kind of thing anybody did to it and it, it is protected. I said, where do you get this from? It's not in the Bible. And so he thinks, you could, he even said, you can tell a Christian from a non-Christian when you go to a restaurant because of the people that pray over the food versus the people that don't. And I said, that's absolute nonsense. So fruit is not praying over the food at mealtime. That's not fruit. That's just a ritual. That's just a tradition. That's just, that's just religion. And fruit is not saying the right things with your words. You know, there's a lot of people that talk a good game. Oh, I've had some people that, you know, I would think that they were holding hands with Jesus all day long, the way they would talk. Then come to find out the guy was in adultery or come to find out that the, that the woman was a witch, was a witch, so to speak. She practiced witchcraft or whatever. I mean, people can talk a good game, but that's not fruit. In Galatians 5 verse 22, here's what fruit is. But the fruit of the spirit. Now it said the fruit of the spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace. It's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, self-control, and it says against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. And you know, you can read the rest of the Bible and there's all kinds of things that are the fruit of the Spirit. One of them is the, is the fear of God. Another is simplicity. Another is holy living. Another is Trust in God, faith in God, all these are fruit of the Holy Spirit. This kind of fruit and fruit like this, the fruit of the Spirit, this is what proves whether or not you have the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you something. It takes power. Jesus, remember, he said, you can do nothing apart from me. It takes power from God by his Spirit, power from the Spirit for anyone to bring forth good fruit because by nature, if we had our own ways, we will not bring forth good fruit just on our own. We're not even made that way. It's only when we come into Christ, we hook ourselves to the vine, we give our lives up to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we allow his spirit to guide and take over and come into us, then we can bear good fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit, not through just a religion. It's not through doing good deeds. It's actually by having a changed heart. So let, let me give you some things that the power of the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit gives us the power, first of all, to repent of sin and to overcome strongholds. I remember when before I turned to the Lord, and I turned to the Lord at 32 years of age, I was strongly addicted to the flesh. I was an adulterer. I was in pornography. 
I was a man who lived for myself and I didn't care for anybody else. I was a very selfish, hardened person. And I turned to the Lord because I came to the end of myself and he gave me power to overcome and turn away from that sinful lifestyle. I never had power before, even though there were times in my life before that I really wanted to change. I tried to change. I was also addicted to smoking three packs of cigarettes a day. I tried quitting 20 times all the different kinds of ways they say you can quit. None of them worked. But in one prayer to the Lord, I, I called on him for help and he delivered me from smoking. And I never smoked again. My point is the Holy Spirit gives us power to repent of sin and to overcome strongholds. He also gives us power to bear the fruit in keeping with that repentance. He also gives us power to confess our sins that we may be healed, like it says in the book of James. And you know, a lot of people can't do that. I've been in a lot of church situations. I've been in groups, men's groups, and various other Bible studies where people were very reluctant. In fact, it's almost non-existent that anybody would confess sin because they didn't trust people or they were too, too prideful or they were too embarrassed or whatever but they weren't really being healed of it either, so they just kind of kept it themselves and kept wallowing in it. See, the Holy Spirit in you gives you power. It takes power to humble yourself and say, I've done wrong. It's the, you know, the, it give, the Holy Spirit gives you power to humble yourself when you are wrong. And when you are wrong, you can make things right. I, I've seen pastors that would never admit they were at fault with any, with any kind of fault or any kind of sin, any kind of mistake, even a misstatement. They never would admit anything. I remember one time I was in a church and I was following along with the pastor and he took a couple of verses out of context and he started saying they were saying something that they didn't say. And I, I thought he really loved God. I, I was very naive at the time. I thought, well, this man would really appreciate it. And I went to him. I went home. I looked up that whole chapter, studied it out, stayed up at three o'clock in the morning, made some notes. I went and called him and got an appointment, went to see him. And I would thought he was going to shake my hand and appreciate what I showed him where he was wrong, he was dead wrong in what he was saying, and I assumed he was going to get up in church the next Sunday and make all that right, but no, he rebuked me out of his office. He told me who was I to question him, that he was the pastor. He was the anointed of God. I had no right to question anything he said, and I was shocked. I was a young Christian, but I was really shocked. See, this man had no power in his life. He couldn't even say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. It takes power to do that, so I knew he wasn't of God. He claimed to be a spirit-filled pastor, but he didn't have the spirit of God. He was filled with something, but it wasn't God. He's filled with pride. He's filled with stubbornness. He's filled with hard-headedness. He's filled with being stiff-necked, but he wasn't filled with the humble spirit of God. You see, also, the Holy Spirit could give you the power to make restitution. If you've done anything wrong or caused any inconvenience for anybody or you've damaged anything of theirs or you've, or you've said something or done something that caused a problem for them, you can go make restitution. Sometimes just take money out of your pocket and pay back. Sometimes just to return something or go, or go. There's always different ways you can make restitution. In most cases, there is anyway. And if there is a way to make restitution, you go make it right. But the Holy Spirit's what it takes to give you the power to make restitution. Also, we live in a generation of rebellious people. Nobody wants to submit to anybody. Nobody wants to submit to their, the children don't want to submit to their parents. Wives don't want to submit to their husbands. Men don't want to submit to their employers. People don't want to submit to the laws of the land. I mean, it's protest and rebellion and it's, it's independence, it's stubbornness. It's all over the country. It's all over the church. It's all over the world. But if anybody has the power of the Holy Spirit, it takes power for the younger to submit to the older. It takes power 
for the wife to submit to her husband. It takes power for a pastor to serve the people rather than to be paid by the people. It takes power. It takes power for a man in bondage, like I've covered on several of the podcasts, to lust and pornography to overcome. It takes power. It takes power for anyone to overcome their tongue. It takes power for anyone to deny themselves of anything that controls them. It takes power for anyone to take up their own cross and follow Jesus. It takes power to, uh, it takes power to deal with pride and selfishness to overcome. You have to have power from God to be able to deal with any obsession or addiction that you may have, whether it's a chemical addiction or a mental addiction or a fantasy or who knows, uh, video games, sports, idolatry, anything that is an obsession with you, it takes power from God to overcome it. You know it takes power to love your neighbors yourself. You know, it's always quoted, love your neighbors yourself. I love God with all your heart. Love your, na- love your neighbors yourself. But you know, to really do that, to really love your neighbors yourself, that really takes some power, don't it? I mean, for us to put somebody else as ourself, in front of ourself, above ourself, in consideration of them as we would ourself, now that takes some power. It takes power to love God with all your heart. In other words, there's so many things in this world that get our hearts. There's possessions and desires and pleasures and dreams and fantasies that we have about life. It takes power for us to put those things below our love for God and love him above all else. It takes a lot of power to do that that because there's so many things talking to our heart, but with the Holy Spirit and with revelation from God and with the grace of God and with the power of God working, we can do that. We can love God with all of our heart. It takes power to discern false teachers and false doctrines. Obviously, it takes power because not many people are even recognizing the false doctrines and false teachers of our day, much less exposing them. It takes power for anyone to seek God and to study his word. And I know this better than as, as much as anybody because I got all the way through high school and almost through two years of college without really studying much of anything. I just sort of skidded by. I kind of listened to the lectures. I kind of took notes. I kind of, I kind of wrote out the essays. I kind of got by. I hated to study. And I was, I, for years, I was an auto technician. I, I was a transmission rebuilder. And I was good at what I did. But sometimes I ran into a problem. And I didn't really know what the answer was. And there were manuals that I could research and look up stuff. That I could go to the internet and look up stuff. But I refused to study because I hated to study so bad. I say there was the internet. There wasn't internet in that day. So there was internet later. I'm talking about way back there. You know, I'm 72 years old. I'm talking about when I was like in my 20s and my 30s. But anyway, there were manuals I could look things up in, but I would work on a car for three days rather than read what the solution to the problem was because I hated to study so bad. I hated hated to research so much. But when I came to the Lord and I started going to church and I went to this kind of church, I mean, I did did the Charismatic, I did the, the Baptist, I did the Presbyterians, I went to... I visited the Lutheran Church. I visited the Catholic Church. I visited uh, uh, K. Arthur's Reach Out Ranch. I went to various revivals. I went to various tent meetings. I read books. I read about the prosperity gospel. I read about the poor gospel. I read about the, the, I went to the Church of Christ, the Church of God. I tried this, I tried that. And I was very frustrated. And I was faced with a situation 
how am I going to figure out what the truth is? And I, and I had to start studying. Now, I, it was like the Bible was 10 feet thick for me. I did not. The, the last thing in the world I wanted to, do, wanted to do was to study. I'd rather do anything than study. I'd rather go to the doctor and have surgery than study. But I wanted to know the truth. I was hungering and thirsting for truth and righteousness. And so after my third year of confusion with the church world, I went home and devoted one day per week to study of his word. It changed my life, but it was hard. When I first started studying, because I was so unaccustomed to it, I could only study for 30 minutes or an hour and I felt like my brain was turning to pudding. I just couldn't hardly stand any more of it. But I would go back each, each week and I took Sundays to do that. That's when we used to go to church and I'd quit. And then I would study for a little longer, maybe. After a while, I could study an hour or two. And then it was two or three hours. And then it was three or four hours. And then I got to where I could study all day long, doing research, looking up stuff, studying by topic, researching the entire Bible, looking up the meanings of the Greek and Hebrew words, finding out how they apply, finding out how they were used in context, even looking at English words to be sure I understood them correctly because all I did in those days was work on cars. I really didn't have a good handle on even the English language as far as the meaning of everything. So I didn't take anything for granted. I studied, I looked up, I researched. Changed my life. It changed my life. But you know what it took for me to do that? It took power. It took a lot of power. It took power from God for me to seek him in prayer and study his word. And it takes power to share the gospel with others. I was a very timid a shy, introverted guy in those days. And I couldn't share anything with anybody. I didn't think until the word of God got at me and started burning like fire. Then I had to start talking to people. I had to start saying something. And you know, then unbeknownst to me that I would ever this would ever happen, I became a preacher of the word over time. I didn't have any idea this would ever happen. I didn't even really want to be a preacher. I didn't really want to preach the word. But I couldn't help it because it was burning in me like fire. Because now the word was in me. The power of the truth was in me and power has to do something it also takes power to share your resources with those who are worse off to help the poor to help the needy to help your neighbor to help your family to help your your brothers and sisters in the lord who are struggling you know i never i never had a i never was rich or anything like that but i always made a good living and i always saw people that were worse off than me even when i was going through hard times there were people who were worse off and my wife and I, by the kindness and the power of God, were able to help others who were worse off than we were. And we've always done that. It takes power because normally we would all, as humans, would be selfish. We wouldn't, we wouldn't worry about somebody else's need if we were just carnal. But it takes power from God to stir up our heart to cause us to care for people. It takes power to be thankful in all things, for an example. I've been through hard times. I've been through sickness. I've been through troubles. I've been through persecution and I've had losses in my life. I'm an old guy. I'm 72. I've had about everything, you know, not everything, but I've had a lot of things happen to me, a lot of things that were difficult. And I learned somewhere along the line uh, that it, with God to continue to be thankful because I always had so many things to be thankful for, even in the hard times, even in sickness and in difficulty and persecutions and people turning against me, people falsely accusing me and loss of this and loss of that. I've had ups and downs in business and so forth. And it takes power to be thankful 
in all things. Like he said, he said to be thankful in everything. It takes power. You can't just naturally do that. It also, it also takes power to just have faith and trust in God. Even though you can't see him, and a lot of times you sure don't see how he's, he's going to work this out for you. You don't see what the end result of something is going to be. Do you know it takes power just to rest in God? Like Hebrews 4 talks about, there's a rest for the people of God. There's a Sabbath rest for the people of God where you come into a place where you actually rest in the Lord, even though you can't see the outcome of things. It takes a lot of power. So let me just sort of summarize with what, with what I'm going to say here. The evidence of the Holy Spirit is the power of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. The evidence of the Holy Spirit is not signs and wonders like I was told about in the charismatic movement. That's not power. You know, the evidence of the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues, as some used to tell me. Or it's not in the ability or manifestation of supernatural gifts, as some have told me. In fact, not everyone, according to scriptures, even would speak in tongues anyway. And not everyone has the same spiritual gifts. Not everyone is a prophet. Not everyone's a teacher. Not everyone has a gift of ministrations or helps. And not everyone has a gift of miracles. Not everyone. You see, there's, there's a diversity in the body of Christ. Not everyone would speak in tongues anyway. So that doesn't, even if somebody doesn't speak in tongues, it doesn't mean they don't have the Holy Spirit. And that's another false conception. So, but let me just tell you something. Just because they do speak in tongues does not mean they have the Holy Spirit. You know, we used, I, I used to see people get so excited if some, if they thought somebody was now learning how to speak in tongues. I remember in one one church I was in, they were even trying to teach us how to get a few syllables. You know, it's like practice your syllables. They said, you know, you know, say this and then say that. You got one syllable, put another one with it. Next thing you got three syllables. And then just keep practicing those and more will come. Well, I don't see anything like that in the Bible. These these guys, when they spoke in tongues, they spoke in tongues. They didn't have to go learn any syllables. But let me just tell you this. The devil can speak in tongues. Yeah, the devil can speak in tongues. He can speak in any language. He knows every language in the world. He understands the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of men. He can do anything like that. He can speak in tongues. The devil can prophesy. The devil can perform signs and wonders, even great signs and wonders. I know I covered this on one of the most recent podcasts. There's false signs and wonders. And it was predicted by Jesus. And God has given the devil power to deceive. And it's to test the people who claim to be of God. So Satan is right there going forth all around us in all the churches and all the religious system and all American Christianity, the devil's right there speaking in tongues, prophesying, performing signs and wonders, even great signs and wonders. And he even does this, he does this through all the time through false brethren, through false pastors, and through false prophets. He does this all the time. And Jesus said there'd be many, many, many of them in the last days. And there are, there's a multitude of them. Just because someone speaks in tongues or can perform a sign or a wonder, or he sees something in the spiritual realm and it comes true, doesn't mean he's doing it by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Egyptian magicians, the fortune tellers, the spiritualists, remember them. Remember the medians and, 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 re, and remember those that read omens and so forth. They're in the Bible. We were warned about them. It didn't say they couldn't do it. It said, don't believe them. Don't follow them. Don't go to them. All of these spiritual powers that I just mentioned and some like that, that I didn't mention, they're from the devil. And they can and they do work through false prophets today in the church in the forms of things like the word of knowledge 
or speaking in tongues or prophesying of future events or revealing dreams and visions and seeing things there or having various revelations or, 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 or even healings, even supernatural healings and various other supernatural manifestations of, of various kinds. Yes, the devil's right there working all around us. We were warned about it. But here's how you know if it's from God. If the fruit is not right it, and it doesn't line up with the scriptures, then it's a bad tree. That is a false brother. He's a false prophet. And it's a false sign and wonder. In other words, it's coming from the wrong spirit. It may have happened, but just because it happened doesn't mean it's of God. You must look at the fruit in that person's life. You must look at the fruit in that ministry. You must look at the fruit in that church. You must look at the fruit in those people, in that person, not at the sign. We have this such a fallacy among us today where everybody's looking at the signs and wonders and not looking at the fruit. So if you see a prophet who performs signs and wonders and he does not have the fruit of humility or he takes your money or he does not address your need for repentance or he makes a big show of his ministry for his own personal glory and things like this, he's a false prophet. I guarantee you he's a false prophet because his fruit's not of Christ. His fruit doesn't line up. Remember that Jesus told us that they would come in sheep's clothing. In other words, they come dressed up like a sheep. They come dressed up like a Christian, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And Jesus reminded us, you'll know them by their fruit. He didn't say you'll know them by their miracles. You didn't know them by their ability to speak in tongues or prophesy. You will know them by their fruit. You will know anyone by their fruit if you'll pay attention and get eyes to see. Like he said over in Revelation 3, get some eye salve and rub on your eyes. Get it from God. Get in the fire of God. Get cleaned up. And then you can see some things. Then you can actually see your own. You can know your own fruit. You can actually know yourself by your own fruit. You can, If you get honest with yourself, you can look at your own fruit. I've told people to do this before. Sit down and draw the diagram of a tree. The, and draw on the branches, draw little circles, and write names on there. Like, do you, are you jealous? Do you get angry? Do you lust? Do you lie? Do you cheat? Do, <laughs> are you full of pride? You know, you see what I'm saying? Put the fruit on the tree. What kind of tree do you have? And then you know what to write, write down where the root is. What's the root? Is it Christ? Or is it the devil? You know, draw your own tree. Get honest with yourself. And if your tree's bad, repent. Remember, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. You will know the tree by its fruit. What about your fruit? What about your fruit? Have you thought about it? What about your fruit? Do you have the true power to overcome sin and strongholds in your life? Do you bear the fruit that leads to life? Or will you be cut off and thrown into the fire? This is a good question. We all have to ask ourselves this question. This is a serious question. This is life and death. This is heaven or hell. Did you get the Holy Spirit? Or did you get some other denominational religious spirit? Did you receive the wrong spirit? Ask yourself this. Are you being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ? Or into something else? Maybe a Methodist, a Baptist, a Charismatic, a Pentecostal, a Lutheran, or just a non-denominational, you know, what, what are you being conformed into? You see, fruit is the evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is the evidence. 
I mean, come on, wake up. The evidence of the Holy Spirit is fruit. It's not manifestations. The evidence of the Holy Spirit is fruit. It's fruit. Do you hear me? It's fruit. And the fruit is going to be either of the Holy Spirit or it's going to be the evidence of the absence of the Holy Spirit. One or the other. If you have the true power, you will have the good fruit to go along with it. And then you will be able to discern the real fruit that preachers and others who call themselves Christians have. You'll be able to discern who it is that is of God and who it is that's not. But remember this, narrow is the way and small is the gate that leads to life and few are those who find it. There really aren't very many true Christians and there are even fewer true prophets and true pastors. Most of them are false. Most of it is a great deception. I hope you listen next week to another Great Deception Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Great Deception Podcast. You may visit my website at www.christianmyths.org for more information, for my blog, and for my email address. You can also get my book, The Great Deception of American Christianity Without Christ, on Amazon or on my website. Also on my website, you may download two free chapters of my book. I hope you join me next week as we continue to examine The Great Deception.